Beliefs don't automatically change behavior or character. I'm going to say it again. What you simply believe does not automatically change your character, behavior, and the way you live your life. Many of us believe that reducing saturated fats, carbohydrates, eating more fruits and vegetables, and lean meats will give us a healthier, leaner-looking body. And we believe that, and we're right in believing it. But that alone, believing it, doesn't change your body. It's what you do with your beliefs that change things. For a spiritual example, you may really believe that Jesus loves you, and that he died for you, and yet... Be just as anxious, insecure, selfish, and messed up as people who don't believe that God loves them and died for them. Believing that God loves you ought to make an enormous difference in how you live your life. But for many people, it doesn't. Why? Because beliefs don't automatically produce changed character. They must be turned into changed character by Christian practices or spiritual disciplines. Christian practice, spiritual discipline, is taking what you believe and putting it into action in your life. And the more you take your beliefs and put them into action, the more character is developed in your life. And perhaps the ultimate action of Christian discipline or practice is observing the Lord's Supper properly. If you're taking notes, the theme of the Holy Communion is all about connection. Communion is about connection. Say it with me. Communion is about connection. The communion connects things that would have otherwise been fragmented and separate. And in order to observe this properly, you need to know the communion connections that are in the Scripture. And I want to share a few of them with you. Number one, when you take the Holy Communion, it connects the now to the night. If you're taking notes, look at that on the screen. Holy communion connects the now to the night. Paul said in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. When you take the holy communion, even though you're taking it in 2019 today, it connects you all the way back to that night that Jesus first took bread and wine and shared it with his disciples. What was going on that night when they were having the Last Supper? Jesus had purposefully reserved a room and set up a meal for the disciples. They were celebrating Passover. What was the Passover anyway? Many of you are familiar in the book of Exodus, God comes down to a man named Pharaoh, a king, and he says, you've committed atrocities against my people. You've enslaved them. You've mistreated them. You've horribly abused them. But those people, they're my people. They're like my son, and I want you to let my son go. Pharaoh scoffs at God, refuses to let God's people go. So what God institutes is a foreshadowing. It's a scrolling forward of judgment day. He said, since you're going to act this way with me regarding my people, then I'm going to send down in Egypt a preview of what's going to happen at the last day when all sins and people who commit them are judged. And you know that the judgment, the wages of sin, is death. So this judgment day was personified by a death angel. God said the death and judgment of all sin in Egypt is going to be visited upon every house. Now here's the problem. You got two groups of people in Egypt. You've got God's people and then you got the Egyptians. And the problem with God's people, as those of you who are God's people know, God's people are still guilty of sin even though they're God's people. God's people don't live perfectly, even though they're God's people. It's possible to be something and not live like what you are. So how is God's judgment going to come down and take care of the Egyptians and yet not kill and destroy God's people? 
God sets up a plan. He said, Moses, I want you to have every family go and take a lamb. I want you to kill the lamb and prepare it to be eaten. And while you're cooking the flesh of the lamb on the inside of the house, I want you to take some of the blood left over from when you slaughtered it. And I want you to paint the blood of the lamb on the outside of the door of the house and on the lintel of the house. And if you put the blood of the lamb on the outside and if you eat the lamb on the inside, then when the death angel passes over, wherever I see the blood, I will cause that judgment to pass over you. So the night of the Passover, all the Israelites, every family took a lamb. They killed the lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And then each family member was commanded. We always think of the Passover as just the blood on the door. No, it was equal parts. You got to have the blood on the outside, but then you got to eat the lamb on the inside. Okay. And so Moses set up in Exodus 12 after their emancipation and freedom from Egypt. He said, God delivered us tonight because every house of Egypt was visited with death. But every house of the children of Israel was passed over and spared. He said, God saved us tonight, and so every year from now on, in the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, every year, we're going to gather together on this night, and we're going to eat a lamb, and we're going to take up wine as a type of the lamb's blood, and we're going to drink it, and we're going to take unleavened bread, which was the bread of our affliction. Unleavened bread is bitter. It's not pleasing like bread baked with leaven. And the bread is going to be a type of our affliction and slavery, our brokenness at the hand of our oppressor. The wine is going to be a type of the blood. And the lamb, the body of the lamb, is going to be a type of the one whose blood we took refuge up under and were saved and passed over. So every year, for over a thousand years, Orthodox Jews had been celebrating that, and they never changed it. Moses in Exodus 12 says, you must never change the elements of this meal, ever. Each piece is important. And so Jesus, he picks out a room. It's Passover. Jesus sets up the food. He sets up the elements. And the disciples, when they come together, they've been doing this all their lives. Every year, it was tradition. And they all gather around the table at the Last Supper. They don't know it, but Jesus is about to be crucified. And they all gather around the table, and Jesus begins pouring out the wine. He was presiding over the meal, you know. In Jewish families, they still do this today. Orthodox Jews still do this today. When they gather together with their family, whoever the patriarch or the father or the leader of the family is at the time, he stands up and he says to the kids, what makes tonight different than any other night? And the kids would say, well, tonight we're celebrating the emancipation of our people from the slavery of Egypt and how they were passed over by the blood of the Lamb. And so Jesus did the same thing. You know, he stands up, and the disciples think he's about to do this same ceremony, but then he breaks the protocol and he breaks the flow. And the disciples notice that there's bread on the table and there's wine on the table, but there's no lamb on the table. Jesus, this is sacrilegious. What are you doing? There's no lamb on the table. And what they didn't realize is there was no lamb on the table because there was a lamb at the table. And he takes the bread, and they think he's going to say, this is the bread of your affliction and your bondage in Egypt. No, he takes the bread, and he says, take, eat. This is my body. This isn't the bread of your affliction. This is the bread of my affliction. Take it and eat it. This is my body. In other words, he left the lamb off the table because he was saying to them, I am the main course. My body's going to be broken for you. And this wine in this cup, this isn't about a little woolly quadruped in ancient Egypt. This wine is the new covenant God is making with you in my blood. You realize what he's saying, don't you? He's saying they weren't saved in Egypt 
all those years ago because the blood of a lamb was worthy. He was saying they were saved all those years ago because God thought so much of the sacrifice I'm about to make tonight that he honored something that just represented me. All of those lambs used in Egypt, all of those lambs used in the sacrifice system of the Old Testament tabernacle, all of those lambs that were slaughtered and offered to God, they were just representatives. They were just substitutes. They were just shadows. But he's saying, my sacrifice was so powerful that God held back the judgment on sin just because of a representative of what I was going to do tonight. Now, when you take that bread and that, that wine, that cup in your hand, you're being transported in the now. You're being transported back to that night. He's offering you an opportunity to share in the truth that his body was broken for your sins and that his blood was shed for your redemption. Take, eat. This is my body, which was broken for you. Somebody lift up your, both your hands and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, say it again. Say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, number two, communion connects your soul to God. Let me, let me go back real quick. I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. Let me go back real quick and make sure you understand. You understand point number one, what I was saying. That when you take communion, it connects your now back to that night. That's very important. You want to go there in your mind. You want to see that in your mind. That Jesus is connecting every Old Testament sacrifice ever done, ever made. He's connecting it to the sacrifice he's going to make on Calvary's cross. And he's saying, my sacrifice on Calvary's cross is so powerful that God's been honoring those lambs and animal sacrifices for years just for pointing at it. That if you just point at it, if you just allude to it, it may not be serious to you, but to God, it's so serious that he held back judgment just because they were, they were pointing at it. Communion connects the now to that night. Number two, communion connects your soul to God. Go to John 6, 53. In John 6, 53, Jesus makes some of the most controversial statements he makes in his entire ministry. John 6, 53. Look at this. Put it on the screen. I want them to see it. It's crazy. Jesus has a large crowd of people in front of him, and he's teaching and preaching. And, and he goes off on this, on this line of teaching and line of reasoning, and it freaks everybody out. John 6, 53, upstairs, please. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Now, when he said this, his crowd left. You know, Pastor John's really close to me. He's been with me a long time. Pastor John loves me. We've gone through a lot of things together. But if I asked Pastor John to come up here and take a bite out of my arm, that would probably be the end of the relationship. <laughs> Jesus, what are you talking about? You know, and they turned around and they left. And the disciples are sitting there. If you read on down in the text, it's funny. The disciples are sitting there, and they're arguing about it. They're grumbling about it. What in the heck was he talking about? And then they asked Jesus about it. Jesus, they said, this is a hard saying. You know, and Jesus said, oh, what? You're going to leave me now too? 
well, we ain't going to leave you. You're the only one that has the words of life, but, but I need to know what you mean about this eat your flesh and drink your blood thing. And so he tells them, he says, I'm talking about the life not outside of you, not your body. I'm talking about the life in you. What is the life in you? It's your soul. That's the eternal part of you, your soul and your spirit. And Jesus said, he goes on to explain the parable. He says, my words are spirit. They are life. They are food. So I don't want you just to hear my words and believe them. I want you to feast on them. I want you to eat them. I want you to drink them. I want you to make them a part of your soul, of your life, of your character, of your actions. Because simply believing something isn't enough to change your character. You have to internalize and do what you believe. That's what he was saying. I want you to eat my word, internalize it. I want you to drink my blood, internalize the fact that the blood was shed for your redemption and then live in the light of that fact. He said, I want you to connect your soul to these truths. So communion number two connects your inward life, your soul, to the salvation you have received from God. Say, my soul's been saved. Now look at your neighbor and say, so live like it. That didn't go over very well. Say, my soul's been saved. Now look at the opposite neighbor and say, so live like it. First Corinthians 11. Go back to our text. Verse 24. Has your soul been saved? I got one yes and a woo over here. <laughs> Has your soul been saved? Yes. Are you living like it? Yes. Are you loving like it? Are you forgiven like it? Are you generous like your soul's been saved? Are you forgiving and do you resist resentment and bitterness like your soul's been saved? Or are you still the same old selfish, scheming, conniving, cutthroat joker you always were, but you come to church now? Has your belief system impacted your actions in any area of your life? Or do you still just do what you want to do regardless of what the Word says, but get your praise on on the weekend? Has there been any change? Has the Word of God in your soul and in your life confronted any of your behaviors? Has the word of God preached to you ever got up in your face in your business and pulled the whip of conviction out and said, what's wrong with you? I didn't call you to live like that. I called you too high for you to live that low. I paid too much of a price for you to position yourself in this kind of mess. I've done too much for you. I've been there for you too many times. You're living like you don't know that I felt you were so valuable and so worth saving that I emptied out my own life's blood, gave my only son to save you, forgive you, clean you up, and wash you, and put you in a high position, and now you're down wallowing with the pigs in the mud like you don't know no better like I didn't send you a pastor to train you and teach you like I didn't put you in the middle of an apostolic church like I didn't send my anointing and my spirit you're living like you don't know who I am like I didn't forgive you all those times like I didn't refuse to condemn you in your mess and weakness like I wasn't there for you all of your life. Even when you weren't looking for me, I was covering and caring and taking good measure to make sure you were covered. 
when you were so drunk you couldn't even stand up, I saw to it that you got home safe. Sit there and look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. When you had that mess coursing through your veins, I made sure the chemicals didn't interact in a negative way in your body and send you to an early grave. I was there for you in your sickness. I was there for you in your abuse. I was there for you when people who should have been responsible turned their back on you and walked out. I was there. I dried your tears when your lover left you. I dried your tears when your loved ones passed away and you didn't think you would have the strength to make it through another day I kept you alive when you tried to kill yourself I put your heart back together every time that it was broken I was there and you're living like you don't even know me is there anybody in the house carrying on in your life and I've noticed that you hadn't allowed none of what I've done for you or taught you to impact your practices your behaviors your lifestyles so he's saying what, what am I to you anyway That's the spirit that Paul's stepping into this church with. He said, when Jesus got up the night that he was betrayed, he said, this is my body, which is for you. If you're going to do this, do it in remembrance of me. Now, our English word for remember is sort of weak. Most people define it as to simply recall something. That is not what remember means in the Greek. In the Greek, it means to fuse together, to sew together, to reconnect together that which was separated. It might help you to understand the definition of remember to know the opposite of the word. The opposite of remember is to dismember. You know how when serial killers cut bodies into pieces, they dismember them? To remember it means to take all the disconnected pieces and put it back together. Each time you take communion, you're supposed to put it back together in your mind that Jesus died not for your neighbor. Not for what the other people did. Not for what your community did. Jesus died for you. The old hymn writer said, was it for crimes that I had done? You hung upon the tree. Unending mercy, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. But if communion doesn't take you back to the cross, if in your mind you're not standing at the foot of the bloody cross on the crimson hill called Calvary, then it is not working for you. You got to remember it. Or did you think this was about some stale grape juice and a dried cracker? It's about remembering, reconnecting, reforming the joy of your salvation. When you first heard the gospel. 
and the beauty of the truth of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ first invaded your soul and tears begin to flow down. And you weren't mad at anybody. You weren't holding a grudge against anybody. You were just saying, what must I do to be saved? You were so thankful to escape the hellfire that you deserved by your lifestyle and actions. You just said, God, I want to be right. I want to be clean. I want to be whole. Creating me a clean heart. Renewing me the right spirit under you oh God and he's saying you gotta get back there when you do this you gotta do this in remembrance of Jesus and of your salvation and of the core most precious truths of your faith and if you do it connects your soul to God yeah back to God. Finally, number three, communion connects the individual to the community. Communion reminds us, oh Jesus, help me not preach this ugly. Oh, help me not get ugly. Oh God, help me not get ugly. Communion reminds the individual that we are all one. That even if you got more money than I do, you ain't better than me. Not when I come to church. Not when it comes to Jesus. Not when it comes to the body of Christ. Communion reminds, put a guard at my mouth. Communion reminds the individual that even if you're a Republican that hates Democrats, and even if you feel so strongly about your political beliefs that you're more passionate about your political beliefs than you are about your God, it doesn't mean you can come in here with your political self and demonize me and send me to hell because I have different political views than you. It means if you're a Democrat, you can't demonize the Republicans. It means the Republicans cannot demonize the Democrats. It also means the Republicans cannot say, nor the Democrats cannot say, that they are the political party that God is on the side of. Sit there and be mad. I don't care. I don't care. The church of Jesus Christ is not the place for politics and political bias. Get that mess out of the house of God. scripture for Republicans and Democrats and independents. Check it out. Romans 3. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and without the suffering bleeding side of our Savior Jesus Christ we were all doomed to a devil's hell. So you can't bring your political self in here and ostracize your neighbor in the other section because they voted for somebody that you hate. Neither should we build churches and entire religious movements around backing one particular party. Because what we won't talk about is there's blatant hypocrisy in both. But we do it today. It's all over your Facebook. Arguing with people. 
insulting other people for their political beliefs. And the moment you do that, you climb yourself up on a high, lofty stool like you're better. But if the truth were told, if you, all of you, was totally exposed, you ain't got a right to say nothing about nobody. Your song every day ought to be, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Communion reminds you, you ain't better. Because you wear a longer dress than I do. You ain't better. Because you don't smoke and never drink alcohol. You ain't better than me. You ain't holier than me. Because you got people that drink and smoke that are a whole lot more forgiving and loving and less prideful than people who walk in here with their church hat on and their skirt all the way down to the floor. They sit all prim and proper. They never cuss. Some of you may cuss, but you love Jesus more than anybody else in the church. Y'all don't want to talk to me today. Communion is supposed to bring us back to the centralized idea that levels us, knocks all the blocks down, no big eyes and little U's. Communion says, I don't care what your gender is, what your race is, what your background is, how much money you got. I don't care what political party you're affiliated with. When you come to the cross, we were all in the same need. We were all in the same amount of debt. The devil held all of our souls in hock and was taking us down to the pit. But Jesus came into the pawn shop with the precious price of his own blood and redeemed us, bought us back, and has delivered us from our affliction. And communion lifts up that central peace. But people don't like that. People don't like allowing the truth of the church and of the scripture to affect their personal prejudices. So you've been coming to church for 20 years with your racist self. Or your sexist self. Or your classism-based self. You really do. When you go out and you get in your car and you turn it on and you drive out, you really do think you're better. I overheard. They didn't know I heard them. <laughs> Sometimes I hate my hearing. I overheard them say, I really like the preaching. The church is just in such a bad area. I don't even feel safe. I run the stoplights and cruise through the stop signs because I just want to hurry and get out of there. I don't know why they don't move the church to a better area of town. Because if Jesus was having church today. <laughs> Hear me, rich folks. Hear me, pompin' pretty. If Jesus was having service today, he would find the most crime-infested, dirtiest, filthiest, nastiest part of town, parts of town that make this look like a palace, he would find the worst he could find and set up shop right there. Because, well, people don't need a position. People who ain't sick don't need a hospital. Thank <laughs> you.
digress. <laughs> so Paul hears. Now, folks. Uh, yeah. Take your time, sir, please. I'm gifted. I'm not the most gifted, but I'm gifted by God to teach and preach his word. And sitting up under my gift regularly should bring some knowledge, some illumination, some insight. You should, you know, not just hear a bunch of hollering and screaming and spitting, but you should come away knowing something you didn't know if you sit up under me. Now, I'm reasonably gifted and skilled to do it. But Paul, the world's never had a mind like the Apostle Paul to preach and teach. Jesus Christ birthed the church, but he left it to Paul to explain it. Paul wrote two-thirds of your New Testament with his pen. He explained all of the mysteries of the Godhead and of godliness and of church order and of church structure, of salvation, of faith. Of redemption and regeneration and being filled with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. We wouldn't know nothing about none of it without Paul. And yet a church who had sat under Paul week after week after week, like you've been sitting under me week after week after week, was still this hopelessly depraved in their mind. That when it came time for communion, oh, they went through the service and they sat together. Next to all those heathens who smell so bad. I don't know why they smell so bad. And that lady up in the front, I don't know why she always jumps up and is screaming. It annoys me so much. The church would be so much better if they would sit down and shut up and just listen. I go to listen. Why won't they just let me listen? As soon as church is over, they would all separate. And they would take out their communion meal that they brought for themselves that they were supposed to share. See, the way it's supposed to work is the people that can afford to do a little more, the people that are blessed by God, you're supposed to understand that you're not just blessed for you. You're blessed to be a blessing to other people. So what God intended was for there to be some really blessed people in the church that could bring enough from their home that not only would the blessed have something to eat, but the poor people who didn't have nothing at their home to bring would also be able to be blessed and have something to eat. But the poor people were of a different political party. Or they were of a different race. Or they were of a different class. And meeting and eating with them after church wasn't good for your profile. Or for your standing in the community or society. So you know what the rich did? They all got together. And they ate and drank all their food. So much so that they were full of communion. Can you imagine how much communion you'd have to eat to get full? They ate so much of it, they were full. And they drank so much of the wine. They were getting their swerve on. They was buzzing. They was drunk. On the communion wine. Paul, I mean, basically, paraphrasing, you understand. Paul basically said, what in the hell is wrong with you people?
didn't you get any of the gospel? Why are you separating and refusing to sit with folks and holding grudges against other people and holding unforgiveness against other people? And then he doesn't stop there. He releases a curse. Yeah, it's only 47. I can talk about it. God, dealing with an apostolic gift is very dangerous. It's dangerous to be an apostolic gift, and it's dangerous to sit up under one. If you are an apostolic gift, the scripture teaches that God has put in the mouth of apostles and church leadership to bless or to curse. Now, if you curse unjustly, God will judge you with the curse you pronounced. But it is still, in fact, a curse. And the Apostle Paul releases a curse on him. <coughs> and I'll explain it. It's not as bad as it sounds. He says, and let me just read it so you don't think I'm making it up. He says, um, verse 27, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves, verse 28, before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. That is why, verse 30, many among you are weak. Everybody say weak. Sick. And have fallen asleep. Or are dead untimely death that's the curse for partaking of communion without discerning Jesus without connecting in your mind to Jesus and his blood and his sacrifice that's the curse and there's another way to heap it upon yourself what the heart of what Paul's saying here isn't just that they were racist or fallen into classism or sexism or, or, or wanting to be distant from other people. He's saying, how can you observe the beauty of the cross and the gospel of your salvation? How can you observe it in a cup and a piece of bread and tie your heart to those beautiful things of what the bread and the cup represents? How can you do that and still be so prideful? Stay with me. What's the root of classism? Pride. I think I'm better than you because I make more money than you. That's classism, right? What's the root of that? Pride. What's the root of racism? I think I'm better than you because my skin's a different color than yours. It's pride. What's the root of sexism? Pride. I think I'm better than you because I'm a different gender than you are. Pride. In other words, he's saying you can't receive the beauty and the truth of the gospel. You can't be filled with salvation because you're not empty of your pride. Or unforgiveness. How can you, if you really understand that the gospel is by grace alone, that you don't deserve to be saved? You've committed crimes against the holy nature of God by sinning. But God freely forgave you. How can you accept that forgiveness from God? Just keep it on yourself. And then withhold forgiveness from your fellow man. And walk in bitterness and strife and unforgiveness. Paul's saying you can't do it. How can you sit in a church with somebody that you refuse to speak to? Because of your malice and your bitterness 
and the condition of your heart. How can you come and receive the word of God and then look on Facebook at all of your enemies wishing and hoping they would post something bad that happened to them because you're praying something negative will happen to your enemies because in the heart and of your heart, in the heart of hearts, you're hateful. And you, you won't do nothing bad to them, but you want to see it happen. He said, examine yourselves. Now, let's get to that curse because I know it concerns you. He said, not examining yourself before you take communion has caused many of you to get weak, to get sick, or to die an untimely death. Now, first, let's deal with the theological point of what he's not saying. He is not reversing what he said in Romans 8.1. He's not preaching a counter gospel than what he said in Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation means judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He's not contradicting that. What he's teaching is a mystery. Stay with me. Guys, get ready for communion. What he's teaching is the mystery of the preserving power in the Holy Communion. Listen to me. That if you take communion with the right spirit, you ought to always repent of your sins and ask God to forgive you before you take it. You ought to always go through your mind and see if there's anybody you're holding a grudge against or unforgiveness against before you take it. And before you take it, Lord, forgive me. I release them. I forgive them. I let it go. Help me move past. You ought to always do that before you take it. Because if you take it in the right spirit, communion actually becomes a preservative against weakness, sickness, and untimely death. He's not talking about, he's not saying God will smite you with weakness, sickness, and an untimely death if you take communion unworthily. No, 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 no. But this life, just the course of this natural life, life has weakness in it. Life has sickness in it. Life has untimely death in it. A friend of uh, our family's, uh, her son just had a, a beautiful baby and uh, just beautiful, beautiful family. And the wife was driving home yesterday and was killed in a head-on collision. And he's 31 years old. And he has to raise a nine-month-old baby without his wife and her mother in the world anymore. Untimely death. But it happens all the time. And what he's saying is when you take communion in the right spirit, discerning Jesus, discerning that your salvation is not by your works, it is by the grace of Jesus Christ. When you empty the pride out and the selfishness and the unforgiveness out and you realize I am only alive spiritually because of what Christ has done for me, when you take the cracker and you take the juice, typifying and being a symbol of the blood and the body of Jesus, it's actually a preservative against weakness. That holy faith in you, that spiritual part of you that's connected to God, when you do the natural action, holding that communion in your hand, realizing what it represents, and then you take it into you, there's something spiritual that happens. If you do it the right way, there's something spiritual that happens when you do it. And it preserves and prevents weakness, sickness, an untimely death. They're passing it out to you right now. Stand to your feet. Worship with it for just a moment while everyone gets served.
Sing with me, would you? You came and changed my life. A little louder. Thought I was worth keeping. So you cleaned me up inside. Come on. You thought I Has everyone been served? If you haven't been served, wave at me. If you have not been served, wave at me. They're running to you right now. They're running to you right now. Take this bread. with me Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus I close my eyes and I picture your body that was broken for me I don't want to just believe it I want to have it in me I want to live like I know it forgive me of my sin forgive me of my pride I'm not better than anybody else. We are all one in you. I'm not more righteous than someone else. Because all of our righteousness is in you. I forgive. Now, anybody you got a grudge against just to yourself, I want you to say everybody that comes to your mind, somebody that hurt you, somebody that wronged you, somebody that stole from you, somebody that wounded you, somebody that did something they shouldn't have done right now, mutter to yourself, whatever their name is, whatever they did, and I want you to say with your mouth, I release it and I forgive them. I release it and I forgive them. I release it and I forgive them. Some of you say, I don't really feel it. You got to say it and speak it until you feel it. I release it and I forgive them. And tomorrow morning when you wake up and you pray, I release it and I forgive them. That's why Jesus told you to pray every day. Father, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. I release it and I forgive them. Because God, I have more faith. Come on, because God, I have more faith. In your power, in my future, than their power to hurt me in my past. I have faith in you. Forgive me of my sin. All of my sins. My secret sins. If I forgot about it, forgive me of it. Now look at that bread. <laughs> 
Look at that bread. And I want you to break it in the middle. Just, just break it. And I want you to see in your mind's eye, in the theater in your mind, the broken, shattered, bleeding body of Jesus Christ. Because without his broken, shattered, nail-scarred, whipped and lacerated, side pierced with a spear, head twisted with a crown of thorns, without his bleeding body, the prayer you just prayed would mean nothing. But because of his bleeding body, the God of heaven will forgive you of your sin no matter what it is. He will cleanse you from your unrighteousness no matter what it is. And he will offer your soul eternal salvation and security in him. Break that bread. Now let's take the body of Christ together. He said, this blood is the New Testament. It's the seal of the new covenant promise that God has with us. It was the price. Know ye not that you are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but you were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. When I take the cup, because it represents the blood of Jesus Christ, I always like to lift it up as high as I can over my head. Because Paul, in verse 24, said, when you take communion, you announce, you proclaim, you present the death of Jesus until he returns. I want all my sins to know I've been crucified with Christ. I want the devil to know and every demon to know I've been crucified with Christ. The death of Jesus Christ is with me everywhere I go. And because he died, I won't be judged. Because he died, I can't be cursed. Because he died, I can't receive an untimely death. My life will follow the purpose and the plan of God because he died. Because he died, sickness has no power over me. If it didn't have power over Jesus, it doesn't have power over me. Because his blood is in my body. If it didn't have power over Jesus, it doesn't have power over you. Because his blood is in your body let's take it together lift up your hands and worship the Lord as the musicians play your salvation that's your guarantee that no matter how broken you are you're accepted and no matter how much wrong you've done you are still loved because of the power of his sacrifice it ought to make us loving it ought to make us forgiving it ought to make us beautiful in the way we behave toward each other because it was beautiful what he extended toward us. Don't you dare let voices of condemnation, fear, and doubt cause you to question your salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
if you prayed that prayer with me in faith, if you took that communion in faith, if you were thinking about Jesus and worshiping Jesus, and excited about what he's done for you, you're as saved as anybody else on the face of this earth, and you ought to be happy about it. I feel the anointing in here. Woo, I feel the anointing in here. Woo, glory to God. <laughs> Woo, glory to God. You ought to just lift up your hands. His glory is here. Woo, his spirit is here. He can minister something to you now. He can put something in you now. He can heal you now. He can preserve you now. He can set you free now. Keep it going. Just bring it down. I don't know if anybody else can feel this. It's, it's strange. It's unique. But if you close your eyes and you're real sensitive to the Spirit, it's almost like you can hear God raining on people right now. You can like hear the rain coming down on people's soul, cleansing years of debris and filth and darkness out of you letting go of years of unforgiveness and hurt and pride you can just hear the rain like you could just hear it in the spirit i that's what i hear i hear god cleansing you if you had something on you for a long time and you're sick and tired of carrying it lift up your hands right now and receive the rain yeah sing that receive the rain your grace is enough
Lift up your hands. May the Lord your God bless you. May the Lord your God keep you. May he be gracious unto you and give you peace. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your spirit will be sealed with the truth of the gospel that we are saved from our sin by nothing but the blood of Jesus and that we would never let any passion become more passionate, that we would never let any love become more loving than the love that we have for God and his people of which we are many members in one body. Lord, thank you for blessing your people today and strengthening them in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.